The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. So let's open our Bibles, if you would, to 1 John chapter 4, and our subject this evening is Living in Wisdom, and I want to go right to the reading of the text, uh, and then we'll begin our study. 1 John chapter 4 and verse number 1. Beloved, believe not every spirit, try the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now already is it in the world. Ye are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. They are of the world, therefore speak they of the world, and the world heareth them. We are of God. He that knoweth God heareth us. He that is not of God heareth not us. Hereby know we the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. The warning from the apostle is to be on guard against false teachers. There are many who pervert the doctrines of the faith. And in this epistle, the ability to discern the difference between false and true is given as a sign of true faith. Uh, one of the ways that you can tell that you that you are a Christian, or better said, a way that you can have assurance of your salvation is the ability to know when doctrines that are preached from the pulpit are true to the Word of God and when they're not. Now, in the larger discussion of 1 John, uh, the purpose of this epistle was to give people assurance of their faith, and he gives several tests throughout the book that you can use to determine if you truly are in the faith. And one of those is, can you discern spirits? Can you tell the difference between who's telling a lie and who is telling the truth? And so he's showing these people that uh, you can tell that you're in the faith if you have uh, the Holy Spirit working in you to help you to discern the difference between truth and error. Now, the things that John talked about here in this first epistle are basic fundamental doctrines and out of that, we can also draw secondary doctrines. And if we know the Word of God, we're also able to discern the difference between those kinds of doctrines as well. Now, in chapter 4, John said, Try the spirits. They were to check out what they heard, to examine the teachings that they heard by comparing them to what he had already told them. He's the apostle of Christ and he learned his doctrine from him, and so what he passed on was the truths that they were to receive. So they were to try what they heard by what they had already received from him. Now, the truth of the matter is that God is never going to contradict his word. He's not going to say one thing in one place and then change it to say something else in another. So if anybody ever comes to you and says that they have a revelation from God and it doesn't match the word of God, then you know automatically that's a doctrine to be rejected. Now, in Galatians, Paul wrote that if someone comes to you with a new doctrine that's not in the Scriptures, then that doctrine and the messenger 
are to be rejected. Jude wrote that we are to uphold the common salvation that was delivered to us by contending for the faith that was once delivered. So we are to beware uh, of false teachers, beware of anyone who claims that God spoke to them and gave them something that you don't find in the Word of God. Now, each of the writers of the New Testament epistles have something to say on, on this order. They, they all warn us about false teachers and the damage that a false teacher can do to the church. And so it is the duty of all Christians. Everybody sitting here in the church tonight, if you're a member of this church, you have a duty to learn the Word of God so that you can tell when someone is not telling the truth. And you need to know that in order for the protection of the church, to help your church that false doctrine doesn't get in, because when false doctrine gets in, the church can be destroyed. So we have to be on the lookout for it. Now, as John points out in this epistle, the ability to do that will bring assurance for your hope in Christ. That's how you know the Holy Spirit's working in you when you feel this very strong desire to resist things that you know can't be true. Now, tonight I'd like to return to the particulars of discerning right doctrine. We've already discussed moral decisions, and now we're looking at doctrinal distinctions. And it's against Scripture for Christians, for the church, to abandon doctrinal essentials and doctrinal distinctives. The Word of God says that we're to uphold these things. And these are things that can be separating doctrines that keep us away from other people. But we're not to let down the walls of our doctrine just in order to bring people in and then to have some kind of a unity. Now, I know that there are churches who teach that we must have unity at all costs. And so they'll use scriptures like this in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 10, that says, Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, that ye all speak the same thing, that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. Or they'll go to Ephesians 4, which says, Till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And they say, well, these are scriptures that demand that we have no divisions in the church. There must be unity in the faith. Well, the Bible does say that. And these are scriptures that are inspired. This is written under the Holy Spirit's direction. But you have to use discernment even when you read scriptures like this. And you have to examine scriptures to find out the right way to achieve unity in the faith. Now here is the key to this, that unity is in the faith. And that seems simple enough, but that's the thing that's missed. It's unity in the faith, that is, in the true doctrines of God's word. So we can't abandon right doctrine in order to achieve unity. And when we do that, we end up with unity, but we end up in unity in false doctrine. And that's going to hurt the church, of course. Now, there's a very interesting thing that Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 19. He said, for there must be, for there must be heresies among you, that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. Now, I've looked at this scripture many, many times. And that's a very, very odd way of saying things. There must be heresy among you. Why? Because heresy brings out the false from the true. And this is how we determine who's telling the truth and who's not. So God will sometimes send heresy into the church, uh, not for the purpose of deceiving us, so that, but that we can know those who aren't true Christians. Because the ones who aren't true Christians 
follow false doctrine, you find out who they are and you get rid of them. You throw them out of the church. So a very strange way of putting it, but Paul teaches us that we have to differentiate between the false and the true. And this is one of those things that is a separating factor for the Berean Baptist Church. We're, we're not a run-of-the-mill, generic church that waters down the Word so that we take any form of doctrine uh, and anyone who teaches any doctrine. Now, here at Berean, uh, we're not... Uh, people wonder, why aren't you supportive? Why aren't you supportive of other churches in the area? And the answer to that question is that we are not going to compromise to get along with anybody. So if, you're, if your doctrine is not like ours, if it's not a true doctrine of salvation, then we're going to have a hard time cooperating together. We've got to make these distinctions. So the essential elements of the gospel have to be upheld. And I happen to believe that that name that's out there on the sign that says Baptist on it, that that name on the sign differentiates us from other people we're not Methodists, we're not Presbyterians, we're not Assemblies of God. We are Baptist, and we teach Baptist doctrine in this church, and we're going to uphold that kind of distinction. That's what the name is for. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't believe that there are people in other denominations uh, that they aren't saved. I know that there are many people saved in other denominations. Uh, but in church capacity, in the, in the ability to work together, the local church, what we believe about that, demands that we uphold the doctrines of the faith and that we remain true at that, these doctrines that distinguish us from others. Now, a little bit later on, a few weeks down the road, we're going to look at Baptist distinctives, and we'll talk about that. What is it, the doctrine that separates us from other churches? And we'll, we'll give that a, an explanation in a few weeks. Um, so we've looked at this, and, and uh, we, we, we talked about distinguishing ourselves from others, and we've discussed that under this heading, and that is the degree of error. And we fully um, admit that every difference that we have is not a difference that's worth fighting over. I mean, even the apostles made allowances for certain things. They made allowances, for instance, uh, with cultural distinctions. Uh, when they're not detrimental to the faith. Now, just to give you an example of this, if you'll turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, we'll look at uh, something here that the Apostle Paul says. 1 Corinthians 11. Uh, the subject of the first part of this chapter is biblical authority. That there is a, a chain of command that is a God-ordained chain of authority. And in the third verse of the 11th chapter, Paul wrote, But I would have you know... That the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. There we have a chain of authority. The head of Christ is the Father. And that's because of the voluntary submission of Christ to the Father. And then he says the head of man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man. So there we have a chain. Uh, the chain of command from top down is the Father, then Christ, then man and the woman. Now, here in the Corinthian church, there were issues concerning authority, and it was a very important issue. It was a custom in Corinth that a woman would show submission to her husband by wearing a head covering. Now, whether we're talking about saved people or lost people, that was a custom in Corinth. That was a recognized custom of the people, and the head covering showed that a woman had power on her head. In other words, she had an authority over her, and her authority was her husband. 
But there were some women outside of the church that uh, were the feminists of the day. And instead of, uh, excuse me, burning their bras, they removed their head covering. They were the feminists. Now, women in the church were influenced by this, and they started to do the same. And that rebellious spirit among the women, uh, not wearing the head covering, was not to be tolerated in the church. Now, this is what Paul says in verses 13 through 16. Judge in yourselves, is it comely that a woman pray unto God uncovered? Doth not even nature itself teach you that if a man have long hair, it's a shame unto him? But if a woman have long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given for a covering. But if any man seem to be contentious, we have no such custom, neither the churches of God. Now, what Paul is saying there is there isn't any other custom at that present time that showed how a woman was to be in submission to her husband. This was a general thing. This was an accepted thing. It's the custom of that area. And not to do it is rebellion against authority. And so Paul upheld that custom and said, this is what you must do. Well, we have people today who want to take that custom that was in Corinth and make that a binding thing on all Christians of all time. And so they say that when a woman comes to the worship services and uh, churches today, that she ought to put a head covering on, some kind of head covering that shows that she is in submission to her husband. Now, the point of this is, that was a custom in Corinth, but is it proper discernment to say that the Scriptures, this Scripture, should be practiced in 21st century America when we don't have a custom like that that says, this is the way that a woman shows submission to her husband. Now, I would venture to say, if you got out on the street and you ask a hundred people, what does it mean when a woman puts on a hat? And I would say 100% of the people would not say, oh, that means she's in submission to her husband. Of course, that's what that means. Well, absolutely not. You know better than that. Now, nobody, nobody says that because we don't have a custom like that. But if you're convinced today that that's the thing that you should do, is that really something that we ought to fall out of fellowship over? Is that such a serious error that we need to split up and be head-covering Baptist and non-head-covering Baptist, and we just divide and, you know, we've got the head-covering church over there and the non-head-covering over there, and we make that a test of fellowship? Well, the answer to the question is absolutely not. That, that's not a serious doctrine. Now, obviously, somebody's going to be right, somebody's going to be wrong, but that's not what we use to make a, a division between us. So the degree of error there is not a serious one, and we need to recognize that we'll experience things like this, that we're not going to agree on every point of doctrine. Only perfect people are perfectly right on every doctrine. Now, while we're talking about head coverings, I just thought that I might take the opportunity to expand this just a little bit, and I'll talk to you about another point of contention that really shouldn't be one, and that is, what about a man's hair. Some of you don't have to worry about it because you don't have any. But what about a man's hair? Well, it has to be it has to be some point where we say that a man's hair is too long. Now sometimes it's obvious, but at other times we don't really agree on what is actually long hair. You know, I see some of these guys uh, playing football on television and they had this long flowing hair down their backs, and like Clay Matthews on uh, Leno's team, the Green Bay Packers. And there was that uh, 
I think he was a Samoan guy or something that played on the Steelers and had that long hair down his back. You know, I don't like anything better than to see some 300-pound guy come along and grab those guys by the hair and slam them down on the ground. And I, every, every time they're going to go out, I said, somebody grab that guy and just yank his hair out. That's too long. You know, I think that we know that's too long. I think we can say that's a length that's excessive. It's not normal. And the Bible teaches that the length of the hair is one way that you distinguish between a man and a woman. So as I said a few weeks ago in the, the Sunday evening message, that a man with long hair is essentially a cross-dresser. He looks like a woman. But on the other hand, you have this issue that back in the 70s and 80s and still some today, you have Baptists who insist that hair on your collar or hair over your ears is the standard. And they've taken that and made that a biblical standard of fellowship. And so you had churches during that period, and I guess still you have some today, that this is, this is their standard. And if you, you don't abide by their standard, that's something that we divide over. We don't have fellowship with one another if you've got somebody that's got hair over their collar. Well, then there was others, like those who made girls kneel on the floor and measure their skirts to see if their skirts are at or below the knee. And somehow that became the biblical standard. Now, let me say, there's also a limit on that. I mean, we know, we can tell when it's extreme. We know where good meets the bad, and it can get too short. And some of you wear dresses that are too short. But I'll tell you this, you're not going to figure that out by measuring a quarter of an inch. You can't make a quarter of an inch into a binding law. If we could do that, then what we ought to do is say, well, let's just go back and let's see what they did in the New Testament, and let's wear only what they did in the New Testament. But then we would have a problem... Because then you got a difference between the Romans and the Jews, the Gentiles and the Jews, and they have different dress. So who's right? Is it Gentile Christians or is it Jewish Christians? Well, you're going to have trouble with those kinds of things. And so you have to make a decision about that. But is this the kind of thing that ought to divide churches? Now, I don't want to beat this drum because this, this is, we, we've got much more important issues to deal with. But it's really a shame, I think, that dress issues have become something that has dominated Baptists while serious understanding of doctrines that are important are just passed over. These things are passed by and people don't understand these things. Our Baptist churches and colleges got stuck on what you wear on the length of your hair, the length of your dress, or anything else like that, all these dress issues, while all the serious doctrine gets passed over. And that is the reason, folks, that for the past hundred years, the Baptists, especially independent Baptists, have not produced a renowned theologian. Not in a hundred years or more. You check it out. Find one. There isn't any. And that's because they got stuck on these kinds of issues. Now, with all that said, I, I still reserve the right to preach on that from time to time because personal appearance is a part of your sanctification. I don't think that we ought to make that a major part because I've known many women that have dresses that hang to the floor and they cause more trouble in the ministry with a judgmental spirit than one who wears an inch, a dress an inch above the knee. So that's not going to tell you whether you're holy or whether you're not. Now, I have one more thing to say about dress. Uh, and I, I talk about these kinds of things rarely, but I, I talk about this because it's kind of ingrained into me. And that is, you don't go out in public the same way that you lounge around the house. Now, when I go out, I want to appear neat and clean. 
Even when I go walking on the mountain, I put on clean clothes. I don't go up the mountain in a dirty t-shirt. I don't go up there with spots on my pants. Sometimes I come back that way because, like a few weeks ago, I slipped in the mud and face-planted. And uh, I didn't look too clean when I got down. But I'll tell you what I did. As soon as I got down, I got in the car, drove home, cleaned myself up before I went anywhere else. So I don't go out in a dirty t-shirt. I don't walk up the mountain with spots on my pants and those kinds of things. Um, And I don't go to the store in my pajamas. You know what I'm saying? I don't go to the store in my pajamas. You know, I go to Walmart, and sometimes I, if I swear, if I was going to swear, I would swear it's lunatic day over there, because sometimes people just dress in unthinkable ways when they go out in public. I mean, people are pigs, folks. They're pigs. And uh, it looks like a circus freak show over there a lot of times. Which all brings me to this comment, that if I know enough to be neat and clean, when I go to a place like walking up the mountain on a dirt trail, if I know enough to make myself presentable there, how do you think I'm going to look when I go to church? How do you think I'm going to look when I go to church? I mean, you don't have to dress like I do. You don't have to wear a suit and a tie. I happen to enjoy dressing dressing up for, for... uh, Sunday services, I, I, uh, I think it's respectful for my position, so I put on a suit. But at least you can do this. And I want to be careful about this because I, I could give you a list of a lot of things that I don't like to see people wear to church. I could do that, but I'm not going to do that. Uh, let me just say this. Have respect for where you are. The church is not the beach. The church is not the place to wear some of the things that people wear because we're here to worship God. And we need to remember that, who we are worshiping. And don't you think that you owe God some respect? Don't you think that you could put on something presentable when you come to church? I mean, if you can do better, do better, because where else is a better place to do better than here? So let's, uh, I think we need to clean that up a little bit. Now, one, uh, one scripture, and I'll get off of this. Do you remember when uh, the Queen of Sheba went to visit Solomon? You know, I wish Zella could be here because she's old enough to remember when she was there. And uh, the queen was very impressed by what she saw. First Kings chapter 10. And when the queen of Sheba had seen all Solomon's wisdom and the house that he built and the meat of his table and the sitting of his servants and the attendance of his ministers and their apparel and his cupbearers and his ascent by which he went up into the house of the Lord... There was no more spirit in her. I want you to look at one word in those two verses. Verse number five, the word apparel. She was impressed with the way that the king's servants dressed. All of this whole thing, just the the whole worship of Solomon and his servants simply took her breath away. And his servants dressed to show the greatness of their king. Well, you remember in the New Testament, Jesus said a greater then Solomon is here. And I wonder sometimes, are people impressed with our king by the way that we were dressed when we come to worship him? Are people impressed by our, by our king when they look at us? Well, that's just some food for thought. Most of you, I don't think, would like it if I came to the pulpit on Sunday morning dressed like some church members. I mean, you would say, what in the world happened to Pastor Smith? What's got into him? You know, a few uh, few years ago, I went to a conference in a church at Windsor, and Lino will remember this, that we were sitting there, 
And the pastor came in, and I said to Lino, he looks like he just rolled down the hill behind the church. And um, I don't, so I don't think that you would appreciate me coming into the pulpit with a black T-shirt and black jeans and black boots and a chain hanging off my belt loop. I don't think you would appreciate that very much. But here's the thing about this, the reason I bring it up. When does all of that add up to enough error that it would split our fellowship? I think that it would take a mountain of those kinds of molehills to finally get to that point that some Baptist preachers do when they sling snot and they get upset and yelling from the pulpit about issues like this. Why are those kinds of things that separate us? Those are not critical issues for us. And not really something that we ought to spend so much time on, as I said a moment ago, that we forget real doctrinally important things so that we don't learn the truth of God's Word. So there's danger of error. There are errors of lesser degree. But I digress. We covered that last week, and so we need to move on. So next we looked at, number two, the doctrines engaged. And in this part, we expanded to take on some more serious doctrine because there are doctrines that should divide us. There are some things you just can't tolerate. They must divide us. Now, these are doctrines that will affect your salvation. So we have to split from others on these. We can't compromise this. We must argue about these things until the cows come home. Now, these are doctrines for which the Lord and the apostles would say, throw that person out. Give him a warning. Tell him to repent. And if he doesn't repent, a man who is a heretic after the first and second admonition, reject. Now, Paul was even more stern than that in another place. This is in Galatians where he said, let them be accursed. And that's the same thing as saying, damn them to hell. Now, you might say, well, that's awfully harsh for Paul to speak that way. He should be more loving and gentle about these things. Well, he was and he wasn't. Uh, he was absolutely intolerant of false doctrine, and he was very harsh towards people who taught false doctrine. But at the same time, um, his sternness, in that sternness, he was loving and gentle towards those that he was trying to protect. Uh, he knew that false doctrine leads people into hell. And so he was relentless against false teachers. And that's an act of love towards those that they would lead astray, people that need the truth to be saved. So Paul preached the truth, and then once he preached it, if people didn't receive it, then his duty was done. And that's where we come to the scripture I quoted a part of just a moment ago, this command in Titus 3, a man that is a heretic after the first and second admonition reject knowing that he, uh, uh, he that is such is subverted and sinneth, being condemned of himself. So you tell the person a couple of times, demand that he repents, and if he doesn't, protect the church. Get rid of that person. Do away with him. Why? Because his doctrine is subversive. It hurts him, it hurts the church, and our job is to protect the sheep. And if we don't, grievous wolves will destroy the flock. Now, the last time we looked at some doctrine that, when perverted, will destroy, the first area of doctrine that needs to be right, and one that demands that we end our fellowship with those who would disagree, is the doctrine of soteriology. And soteriology, that's the doctrine of salvation. Soter means savior, it means uh, uh, deliverer. It's very critical doctrine. 
It's actually the crux of Christianity. Uh, crux, of course, is a word that comes from cross, and cross is the cross is the place where Christ won our salvation. And so to destroy salvation is to destroy the cross of Christ. It's to make his cross, his cross of no effect. So we, ha- we have to look at this uh, very closely. And we looked at the problem that uh, took place in the, in the churches of Galatia, they had made the cross of no effect because they'd been infiltrated by those that were teaching false doctrine, a false doctrine of salvation. So people were very confused. Judaizers had messed them up, and they said that salvation is not by grace alone. It's not by faith alone. They said you've got to do something else. And what they wanted to do then was to add to Christ's work on the cross. And so they said you've got to get circumcised in order to go to heaven. Oh, in other words, they said there's a ritual that you have to keep. There's some other commandment that has to be done before you can go to heaven. And if you do that, then you can be saved. Well, this is what Paul said about it in Galatians 3. He said, O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that ye should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you. This only would I learn of you, received ye the Spirit by the works of the law, or by the hearing of faith. Are ye so foolish, having begun in the Spirit, are ye now made perfect by the flesh? So he said, who has bewitched you? There's a problem. A false teacher is bewitching. He's like a sorcerer who, who, uh, whose wizardry just fascinates people and leads them down a path of, uh, to never-never land. And Paul knew that that is a path to hell. And so he was very stern about it. He knew where the road went. So he was forceful. And that's why he said in that first chapter, let the person who does that be a curse. Let him be anathema. Let him go to hell. So we have to be very discerning about this. We, we can't tolerate departure from the exact gospel of Jesus Christ. It must be right. So discernment means to examine these things carefully. And that's because the fault in a doctrine, the error in a doctrine, is not always blatantly obvious. It's not. Many will say the very same things that you say. They will use the same terms that you use. And yet they have a different meaning to those terms. And they try to fool you with that. So you have to be careful about this. Uh, People that claim to be orthodox don't always have an orthodox meaning to their doctrine. So you listen and you look carefully, and when the error is too deep, you don't walk with that person. Well, now we need to move on and look at the next one. And this next doctrine is the doctrine of Christology. Christology is the study of Christ. What do you believe about Christ? Uh, this is the main doctrinal consideration in 1 John chapter 4. In verse number 3, John said, And every spirit that confesseth not that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh, is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, whereof ye have heard that it should come, and even now is it already in the world. Now the error we're talking about here is an error about the person of Christ. It's an error about his divinity and his humanity. Now I've talked about this many times, but it does bear repeating. Uh, since the error that John talks about in the first century is still hanging on here in the 21st century. Now, the issue here in 1 John is the Gnostic view of Jesus. And in chapter 1, John hit that Gnostic view head on 
when they said that Christ was not fully human and neither was he fully divine. Now, what we're talking about here is the union of uh, divinity with humanity that we call the hypostatic union. And they taught, uh, this is the doctrine under consideration, they were teaching that Jesus was not fully man and not fully God. Charles Dodd wrote, The fundamental doctrine of Judaism is monotheism. No utterance, however inspired, which contradicts the principle of monotheism, can be accepted as true prophecy. The fundamental doctrine of Christianity is the incarnation. No utterance, however inspired, which denies the reality of the incarnation, can be accepted by Christians as true prophecy. Now, in John's time, there was a man by the name of Serenthius. He was a contemporary of John. And he taught that God came into a man's body. Now, the man name, of course, was Jesus. And what he taught was that when Jesus was baptized, that's when the Spirit entered into him. But then, when Jesus was to be crucified, the Spirit left him before the crucifixion, and then Jesus died as just a man. Well, there's lots of heresies contained within that. And so what John couldn't do anything less than just forcefully refute that bad doctrine because it denied the virgin birth. And it denied the incarnation of Christ, at least in the way that the Bible teaches it, uh, the union between God and man. So it denied also the death of Christ as God suffering for the sins of man. So those errors show how closely that doctrines can run together. And that is, I mean that your Christology can affect your soteriology. So that if you're wrong on Christ, then you can't be right on salvation. So these run on parallel tracks. Uh, and so who teaches these kinds of errors? Well, the Gnostics did in the first century. The Arians did in the fourth century. Uh, Arius taught that Jesus was not the same as God. He said that God and Jesus were not the same substance. They are similar, but they're not the same. He didn't believe that Jesus was truly God, and neither was he only human, but that Jesus had God-like characteristics, but not the same as Jehovah God. Well, the Scriptures directly refute that. Jesus very clearly said that he is the same in essence as the Father. He said to Philip, when you've seen me, you have seen the Father. And he said, I and my Father are one. And you remember in that long study that we had of Matthew, I was always careful to point out the many times, directly and indirectly, that Jesus said that he was God. And then the epistles give very important statements that tell us that Jesus is God. For instance, in Colossians 2, verse 9, Paul wrote, For in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. And then in Colossians 1, 19, For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. And then Hebrews chapter 1, God who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who being in the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. So we had first century error, then we have fourth century error, and error recycles itself. And so in the 19th century... The error was resurrected 
by Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses. Now, neither of them is Christian because they have a deficient Christology. Now, they do have a Christology, but it's not the Christology of the Bible. Now, let's take a look at them for just a second. The JWs and the Mormons believe that Jesus was created. Now, the Mormons have a little bit different view from the Jehovah Witnesses. The Jehovah Witnesses will just plain out say that Jesus was created. The Mormons say that there was a sexual union, a physical sexual union between God and Mary. A physical thing. Now, that's, that's a very strange thing, but that's what they believe. Now, this, this kind of thing, uh, the Jehovah Witnesses believing that uh, Jesus was created, leads them to their translation in the New World Translation of John 1.1, which says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. And that's God with a little g. Then Colossians 2, verse number 9, becomes this. Because it is in Him that all the fullness of the divine quality dwells. Now, what's the problem between our view of Christ and theirs? Well, it's a simple one. Their Christ doesn't exist. There is no Christ like that in the Bible. The closest thing that, come, that they can come to is what they believe. There you have Jesus created just like Satan was created. So they are essentially co-equal counterparts. So what happens with a Jesus like that? Well, he's a Jesus that can't save. He can't. I mean, soteriology is affected by this. If you are seriously wrong on Christology, things like the, the virgin birth and so on, the incarnation, then these are salvation matters. Now, going back to John's statement in the third verse, a person must confess that the Son of God came in the flesh. Now, it's very important what he meant by that, that he came in the flesh. What, what kind of flesh? Uh, how, how did he come in the flesh? Well, the flesh and the body are important to this, to this argument. The, the nature of Christ cannot be exactly like man's nature. Now, even though he's fully human, there's a difference in the nature that Christ had, and that is that his father was God, whereas your father and mine are human. Now, with the father, uh, Jesus' father being God, he is fully human, but his father is God, so how did the Son of God come in the flesh and not have a sinful nature? Well, that's what the virgin birth takes care of. This is why we believe in the virgin birth. Uh, the sin nature is passed on from the Father to the children. And since Jesus' Father was God, he had no sin nature that was passed on to him. So Christologically, he has to be sinless in order to die for sinful men. And because he is sinless, he's able to satisfy the requirement of God's justice. 2 Corinthians 5.21, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And so you can see how serious the error in doctrine is. Uh, this is a doctrine that must separate us because we're talking about Christ or no Christ. And you have to have Christ to be saved. You can't be a Christian without Christ. And these people do not have Christ. They don't have the Christ of the Bible. Now, I think we all recognize the seriousness of that error. So what we do is we just automatically, we reject Mormons and Jehovah Witnesses. We don't have to beat each other over the head with this and make arguments about it. We're just going to reject that because we know that it's not the truth. But there's a, a much more subtle error uh, in soteriology that affects Christology, 
by those who do claim to be orthodox. And that is when those who claim to believe in justification by faith are actually denying justification by faith alone. Now, in this case, uh, with the orthodox, um, the soteriology has serious ramifications on their Christology. So they actually also do not believe in a Christ that's in the Bible. Now, I say, well, how is that? What do you mean by that? Well, let's take somebody who believes that salvation is not eternally secure. You take a doctrine like that that says that a person can fall from grace, you're going to have to change who Jesus is. Now, why would you have to do that? Because Jesus said that none that are given to him by the Father will perish. And so if any of them perish, then that means that Christ is not powerful enough to keep them saved. Now, what, what did Jude say about this? Well, we, read, we talked a moment ago. He, he said, contend for the faith, delivered to the saints. But then he had a comment on this very issue at the end of Jude in the 24th and 25th verses. He said, now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and ever. Amen. Now, I would submit to you that a Jesus who does less than that does not have the power of God. Now we're saying that Jesus is not equal to God. A Jesus who does less than what Jude says right here is not the Jesus of the Bible. If you could lose your salvation, if that's what you believe about Jesus, you have a deficient Christology. Now, that's going to put us at odds with Methodists. It'll put us at odds with Pentecostals, many of the assemblies of God as well. The official doctrine of Lutherans is the very same thing, and the doctrine of Roman Catholics. So where does that leave us? Well, I maintain that though they are claimed to be orthodox in these areas, that they actually preach a different Jesus. Now, once again, we're pushed back into the area of soteriology, a doctrine that says that a person can lose his salvation. That is a denial of justification by faith alone. Now, it means then that the cross of Christ was not enough. That Christ died on the cross, but his death was not fully sufficient. So what must be added to that is something that you do. That's a pure work salvation. That's not the Christ of the Bible. So man has to play a part, they think, in salvation in order to complete what Christ started. Now let's take a look at another scripture and you'll see what I mean. Romans chapter 8 and verse number 33. I'm not sure... If the, did we put that one up? Okay, we just got the reference. So if you want to turn there, Romans 8 and uh, verse number 33. These are familiar to you. Uh, great verses on eternal security. Uh, perseverance. Romans eight thirty-eight through 39. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, 
nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now you look at those verses and you wonder, how does a person who believes in falling from grace, what are they going to do with these scriptures? And not only this, but John ten twenty nine, where Jesus said, My Father which gave them me is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. So how do they deal with that? What are you going to do with this scripture? Well, what they say is that no one can separate you from the love of God, but you. You're the only one who can, because you're the one who's in charge of your heart. Now, their consistency in this is they say, well, you were the one who chose Christ by your own will, and so you are the one who can reject Christ when you want by your own will. Now, I don't know why people don't think these things through. I mean, this is a problem of proper discernment. So this is a doctrine that actually changes Christ and what he does. It's a different Christ from the one who's in the Scripture. Now, another way that they deal with Romans chapter 8 is they say, well, this is true. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. And so if you die and you go to hell, which you'll lose your, you can lose your salvation and die and go to hell, that just means Christ, Christ is sorry for what happened to you, and he still loves you while you're in hell but apparently not enough to save you from that place, I, I won't guess. But what do the Scriptures say about that? Hebrews 6, For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away to renew them again under repentance, seeing they crucified to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. Now, I don't know of any of these people who also believe that a person who loses their salvation could not be saved again. Almost all of them teach that you can't. All of them, I guess, teach that you can. So the sin of apostasy, according to Hebrews chapter 6, becomes the sin of crucifixion. You crucify Christ to you again. Now, you see what you get yourself into? When you change doctrines in the Word of God, when you change Christ, you change the love of God. You change the punishment of God. You change the grace of God. You change the salvation of God. You change the cross of Christ. A different Jesus does not work. And so the Bible falls apart as God's revelation if the nature and work of Christ are ever tampered with. So these are two very critical areas of, doc areas of doctrine. One soteriology, the other is Christology. These are foundational, they cannot be compromised, and it's a degree of error that is too serious to overcome. And so we have to be very discerning and use wisdom in how far that we go with people who have a difference with us on the Scriptures. We need to know what we're talking about. Now, that's what separates us. That's what keeps me and Berean Baptist Church on a different side of the cross from these others. So I just ask you, do you know these things? Do you understand these things? Studying the Bible brings these doctrinal issues to light. So we know what we're talking about, knowing what we have to believe. So what we're not going to do, we're not going to abandon the Bible. We're not going to abandon doctrinal distinctions because the faith of Jesus Christ depends on right doctrine. Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you for uh, the study tonight, for your word. Lord, uh, help us that we will know the truth of the word of God, that we would be diligent to study, uh, to know when the person who stands behind the pulpit is telling the truth and when he's not. And Lord, help us not to take everything at face value, but just to look into the Word of God to see if these things are so. Um, that's what Bereans did. They checked the Word of God to see if these things were true. So Lord, help us to do that. Be with us tonight and bring us back into your house again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronan Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www dot bbaptist dot org